Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting day today with legendary actor John Savage. You're going to have a great time today. This guy is a wealth of information, has been around a long time, and knows the business like no one else. And I know you're going to get a lot out of it. And before we start, I just want to let you know that I am again and will always be truly grateful for everything you guys have done to support this podcast. I'll say it over and over again ad nauseum. I am very grateful for all of your support. For without you, we wouldn't be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, I look at my guest and I never know what I'm going to say but hopefully it'll relate to something positively for this podcast. And when I look at John Savage, I think many different things, but the two things that come to mind that I think about are longevity and working with extraordinary people in his profession. And I think wherever you are in the business, whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, in everybody's profession, even in the office where you work, there's always going to be somebody who you can look to who you feel might be a little smarter than you, might be a little more experienced than you, might be a little more of a visionary than you, who you can rally around and be with them and sort of through osmosis gain their wisdom and knowledge to help you take your career to the next level. And when I think of John Savage, nothing is more evident than that in his career. I mean, this is a guy who has worked with everybody from Francis Ford Coppola 
Terrence Malick, Ridley Scott, David Mamet. It's just the list goes on and on and on. And even when he wasn't working in the business, he made it a point to align himself with one of the greatest visionaries in the world, in Nelson Mandela. The guy in and out of the business is always there. Even in television, he worked with James Cameron. Even in film, instead of doing a major role, he helped out as a producer and production manager with Spike Lee on Do the Right Thing and created the relationships that gained him more roles in films like Malcolm X and Summer of Sam. It never stops. It's like a snowball rolling down the hill and gaining momentum. The more relationships you create with great people, those great relationships show other people who are brilliant in your field that you're capable, you can do anything, you can take direction, and you can do great, great work. And when you do that, it creates a sense of year after year in the business. People keep coming to you, wanting to work with you, wanting to have you on their projects, just like they did with John Savage, which creates more longevity, more years in the business, more respect, and more and more unbelievable work out in the world that people can see. And so in its simplest sense, yes, we always talk about relationships. It would never happen if he didn't create great relationships with all these people, that they didn't feel safe when they worked with him. But after that, the work, the work is evident. You can't deny the work. When you watch John Savage on film or on television, every frame, the guy gives you everything he has, and he never wavers, and he's always great, and he's always respected, and that's why he keeps working over and over and over again, and why he's had the longevity he's had. And I tell you out there with all sincerity, if you can do those kind of things in your career and your business and your profession like he has in his, you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that John Savage has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about today. We're going to have an amazing time with legendary actor John Savage. And without further ado, I can't think of a better way to start than to get this introduction over with and get talking to the man. So here goes. 
Born John Youngs in Meadowbrook, Long Island, New York, John Savage sang and acted throughout his early school years. At the age of 17, his true passion began to come to fruition once accepted into the prestigious American Academy of Performing Arts. Upon graduation, he landed his first job on Broadway in the chorus of Fiddler on the Roof, as well as the understudy for one of the lead characters. Shortly after arriving in Los Angeles, the rising star found himself cast in the original production of stage legend David Mamet's American Buffalo, playing the role of Bobby under the direction of the esteemed Ulu Grossbard. John Savage's major screen debut came in 1978, co-starring with Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken in the Oscar-winning Best Picture film, the Deer Hunter, which gained him international extraordinary attention for his work. The following year, he had leads in three more major motion pictures, including Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part Three, Milos Forman's legendary musical Hair, and the film adaptation of Joseph Wamba's The Onion Field. His appearance as a suicide survivor in Richard Donner's Inside Moves continued to garner him praise as an actor of great range and enormous diversity. He went on to co-star in Maria's Lovers with Natasha Kinski, backed by cinema legend Robert Mitchum. While his film career was skyrocketing, his TV career was also rising as he landed several series regular roles throughout his years first being introduced onto television as Jim Malloy in the NBC series Gibbsville, as well as several movies for television. During the late 80s through mid-90s, Mr. Savage worked with Nelson Mandela to lend his role as a celebrity to the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Back in his Hollywood roots, he worked as the assistant production manager of Spike Lee's film Malcolm X, Savage had previously worked with Spike as co-producer and one of the stars of Do the Right Thing, and later showed up again in Spike's Summer of Sam, as well as his Showtime TV movie, Sucker Free City. Since his return back to Los Angeles, John Savage's career grew more rounded with yet more television and film projects. He was a series regular on James Cameron's Dark Angel with Jessica Alba, as well as the acclaimed HBO series Carnival. All along, his silver screen presence never wavered and remained steady with roles in American Strays, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, Ridley Scott's White Squall, and Kevin Costner's Message in a Bottle. His most recent projects include Goliath's show with Billy Bob Thornton, Twin Peaks, directed and produced by David Lynch, and Dubious Battle, directed by James Franco, Torch, directed by Christopher Coppola, and The Last Full Measure, directed by Todd Robinson. A powerful actor and a man of great character and humanitarian calling. John Savage, incredibly, has starred in over 300 feature films and television roles. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce you to one of the most legendary actors of our time. Please welcome John Savage. Thank you, Barry. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> you're such a great guy. You've got a great attitude. I feel like you're somebody I, I hope uh, I can feel this way, like I've known you my whole life. It's uh, nice out here when you run into people like that. I want to be a good guy. My kids, when they run into you occasionally, I don't think they really understand everything about what you do or how you are. But when they run into you, you automatically stand a little straighter and have a little more respect when you're around. Do you notice that? Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know. They were good kids. They got a good mom. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of uh, energy in both of you as parents. So that is indicative of, uh, I think, you know, you're giving this feed. I think it's a, whatever you want to call it, positive energy, despite the world. So they're doing okay. What is it about the world right now that strikes you as being the kind of world where you would say in spite of or despite the world today? There's a great deal of, you know, as usual, uh, fear, maybe, or excitement and fear and uh, challenge. I travel and there's a great deal of stress that we're not aware of. We see in the news. It's a moment. And it's pretty dramatic in the moments you see in the news. Before we've been at war for 14 years internally, everybody's affected by that. I went through that, you know, even with my parents after the Second World War, growing up as a little boy, being introduced to people. Everybody had been affected. Their parents had been affected by First World War, depression, uh, you know, drinking was a way of looking to the positive side, and then people were lucky to live past the age of 16. There's still communities like that. It's a spirit of, you know, keeping family tight and enjoy and keeping our energy up of, uh, you know, just strength. And that strength was, you know, we don't whine, we don't complain, we just do our best. And when we have our kids, you know, we don't we don't whine to them. We don't complain to them. We try to support them in our best way. And a lot of time it's with, you know, that, uh, you know, we uh, take things out on people that we love. And in a way, we think it's supportive. Or we think, uh, you know, they'll get over this. They'll, it'll help them grow. One of the things I always feel when I'm around you, and I've never shared this with you, I always have this feeling like there have been select moments in your life where you didn't know if you were going to live through the experience. When was the first time you almost lost your life? When I was born, my sister died. We were babies that were too small. I was a pound and a half, I think, when I was let out of the hospital, maybe before that. But we spent months in those incubators, you know, like an egg. You were born how much prematurely? About three months. Wow. So I was just ahead, you know. <laughs> but uh, my baby sister, my mom used to get me the needle. You're only here because your sister pushed, kicked you out. And then uh, she didn't make it. Your and sister died at birth. She died a few months later. Wendy, John and Wendy, like Peter Pan. But after that, when was the first time you almost lost your life and you knew it? Well, I had no development really in my lungs and my... Uh, some of my nerves, nervous system and pain. I thought I was, uh, I just had to give it up. I wasn't, I couldn't breathe or I couldn't. Uh, what do you mean you had walk. to give what up? And I got polio. You, you had polio? Yep. I was they had in the 50s as an epidemic and luckily to some of the support from the effort for iron lungs out of California, we had it in Meadowbrook Hospital and I was putting an iron lung and these 
Could you explain to our audience what an iron lung is? Well, you don't have the ability really to breathe uh, for the reason of deterioration of the nervous system from polio or the effect of polio. And it, you know, went through steps for some young kids at the time to fluish behave, flu effect of the flu. Obviously, the polio, you were at risk of dying, but I want to know when you're conscious life as a young adult when was the first time you felt like it could have been on a film there was a movie i could have been the deer hunter where you did a stunt where you're on a wire or something like that over a river or something of that nature and you, deer did, hunter maybe. and you did the stunt yourself yeah why i was having a great time you didn't think you could die doing that stunt hell no not me no, we were we were very conscientious about each other. I think Vic Morrow was conscientious too. Uh, and yet, a lot of us in a position were, were like grunts. We don't have the control of the commanding people, and sometimes that needs to be changed. And mm, we got we had good people with us. Robert De Niro, very strong individual, very clear about when he saw we both when we we noticed danger. It was. Quickly, quickly recognized and pointed out, you know, and we didn't die. Um, issues like with the log being three tons, getting caught underneath it, and then the current changing after the crew and the little boat with the camera went into the water. Panavision cameras big and heavy, but they all oh moved to try to help. You can't help. Three men getting caught underneath a three-ton log, the water did it. Thank God. Um, the water moved along. When you went under, did you think it's over? Probably, you know, for a moment. And that's where faith comes in. You got to have it. You got to have faith, you know. I had a horse stunt uh, that was like out of, uh, out of nervousness. A horse had to be changed in Italy. And these guys are all great guys. What does that mean? A horse needed to be changed. Changed, like the, not the diapers, but they had to put it from the front. Uh, the horse I was on had to be changed in the course of the, the story to another horse because it was injured. So at that point, I was on the wrong horse, and I'm leading him up. And this, it's about South Africa, but they decided to film it. I thought it was going to be in South Africa with people and friends there, to um, or Namibia, to the desert in the Dolomite, uh, below the Dolomite Mountains, which looks like South Africa in parts. And uh, the uh, Dolomite uh, dunes we were using as as uh, English army coming up with captives who had been possibly involved with anti-authority uh, activities, supposedly tied up. And I had a bunch of horses that, on, that I was holding with a couple of I think mostly women that had been uh, supposedly hands tied behind the back. Again, a point that we, it was, it doesn't need to be done. Just fake it. If you need your hands, you got to have them. And, uh, and then they, we did it. It was great. Now, oh no, wrong horse. So on an Italian screaming and megaphones going from assistant directors, get him on the other horse right now. Put the other horse. Oh, time, time, time. We got to do this. I said, okay, you cowboy, you do it first. You ride that horse first to get him in touch with what he's doing. He's in the front now. He was in the back. It's not a good idea to just jump up there for me as an actor. He's not going to be ready. 
I don't want to prepare that horse while we're filming. Uh, it might not work. I'm just, I, you know, I'm not a cowboy. I've done some cowboy stuff, eh, but I don't feel it was safe. And but I said, okay, okay, like the being on a helicopter. Uh, but it was another stunt that I was uh, was involved with for that, um, not the deer hunter. And the horse was nervous, looking around. Wouldn't pay attention to walking. I needed to calm him down. You know, I kept trying to just relax him. It wasn't yet ready. And what happens is if somebody might bite him in his ass, or whatever they do to get in front, and all this stuff might happen. So we go, go. We go up, we go up the top of this dune, which is about 40, 35 feet high, and we're looking down the slope, and I stop, and that's it. But he's not standing still, and I'm trying to just sit back. Oh. You stay down. The guy yells, turn his head to the left like you're going to leave. There's no place to go. Just turn it like, just turn it, just turn it. So I just laid the reins over. Just to turn his head a little. He bit down, stepped forward. Couldn't, couldn't get his head up with one arm in time. Like this is all less than two seconds. So eh, he's going over. He's, his head is down. So his weight, I, I, I couldn't get his head up to bring his butt down to go down, to go, if he's gonna go down that hill, he's gotta go down on his butt. And I have to get his head up, and I have to really pull it. And then, and then he pulled his, he'll pull his butt down. But I didn't have the other arm. And uh, it was just a matter of a second of him stepping over and bump. I could, should have said, no, you know, <laughs> you turn his head. I jumped and he flipped and came down his whole body across me. Like my head was, I felt the, the backbone go right across my head in my chest, full weight of a horse. And I just gave it up. I said, this is it. You know, just, thank you, God, bye. I'm done. And luckily the man, the young man behind me was wise enough to jump off his horse, run down the hill, and guide the horse back over from where he came. Otherwise he would have rolled over my chest and that would have broken me up. When I swam, I had two different coaches, one in high school, that would stand over the pool directing every segment of the practice and pushing you and pushing you. And then when I went to college, I had a coach who just put the work out on the board. Which kind of director do you prefer? The one that just lets you do your thing or the one that gives you constant direction and pushes you to a certain level? They might just be, you know, chicken chicken shit enough to say I want to somebody just tell me what to do and uh, doesn't happen you know I don't care what people tell me to do I won't do it I can't it's like something in my body I'll, you know, it might give me an idea or courage to do something I usually I try to hold to, within a boundary of safety you know if an actor wants to improvise and do a real fight I'll, I'll lose <laughs> Because there's there's barriers. Once we get over it, they're not. It's not. It's not. It's not acting anymore. And for me, the acting is a craft, which comes from deep. It comes from inside. But people say, "Oh, that's how that person really is." Not really. There's limits. There's just boundaries in life. Things that don't help. Don't help when you're looking at, at that work. People have an imagination. They want to imagine. You said it's about feeling safe and creating a character where you feel safe with the other actors. 
a scene that still haunts me to this day and I get goosebumps is the Russian roulette scene in The Deer Hunter. Michael Cimino just was do it again, do it again, do it again better, do it again. You know, and after a while we started practically changing roles because things change around you and stuff, not that we change roles, but my character once or once or twice, Bobby was looking for help from me, the kid. Yeah. What do you do? You help him. You know, you reach out. And that's that's one of the joy of really working with good people, too. Good director, good actors. Uh, I saw you doing this uh, thing in the shot. You know, Mike Shemir might say, what'd you do that for? What'd you do that? That was different. That was into, all right, forget about it. Don't do it again. <laughs> you know? And when you're with good people like that, you find those moments. Malik, I mean, uh, same thing, pretty much. You know, I looked at the pages here. We wrote, I wrote some notes about my experience with my dad, Guadalcanal. Was this for the Thin Red Line? Thin Red Line. And it meant a lot to me. And I was very grateful they gave me a moment in the movie, you know, because uh, I don't think they were going to hire me at all. Not only did he give you a moment in the movie, but he was a guy who, for our audience, if you don't know this about Terrence Malick, he was a guy who had no regard for the studio system, how it worked, or traditional ways of doing things. He would cut people out, and the studio could say, keep that guy in. He would cut them all out, and he would do whatever he wanted based on whatever he felt drove the story and were the most extraordinary performances. And it should be noted, Mr. Savage, that he cut out huge chunks of scenes with George Clooney but kept your scenes in, and you didn't even know if you were going to make the movie. No, and the great producer, too. Just, uh, he's done great movies. I've known him for years. Um, but just, just those moments that, uh, you know, came through, we, you know, just go up there, uh, here, there's the notes, if you want to check them out and see what we discussed, maybe we, about your dad. And I just go up there, uh, stand up there, I frig the great crane over here, and Sean and the guys will be, uh, I want you to just go up there, okay, go, already, action. Shit. When John says a crane, he doesn't mean a crane like a construction crane. What he means is a camera that is on a huge lever, sometimes called a jib, that gets those huge, sweeping, beautiful shots, but also can take the close-up and come back out again. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I wanna do it because I wanna help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today.
I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. But I'm going to go back to the deer hunter scene. So when I watched that scene, it completely changed me as a person, made me realize how grateful I was for the people that defended the country, but also how grateful I was that I wasn't one of them. You're a young actor. You're sitting across from two guys who are, even at that time, were powerful presences. And you got the other actors who, believe it or not, the Vietnamese actors who nobody gives them any credit at all in the movie, and they were amazing. What channeled through you yeah. in your real personal life exactly, yeah. that got you to be able to bring out that kind of performance? I, everyone brought what their experience was for their lives at that time. The effect of the war on their community, on their lives, the TV, what they were seeing, and just their neighbors and people at home. Um, everybody brought that feeling. They didn't know what to do. People were dying for, for civil rights. Uh, you know, after the Second World War, we forget, and some poets came out of it, creativity, with that conflict of cultural growth after the Second World War, then the Korean War. A lot of vets were getting together, bringing people together in my little house in Levittown, which was a GI Bill neighborhood, uh, with people just supporting each other. Levittown, New York? Yeah, Levittown, Long Island. Great little town. All right, so you talked a little bit about yourself and what happened to you at birth, but I want you to take our audience way back and to the time when you first had any kind of inspiration about being an actor, what happened? What was it that just jolted you? And then tell our audience, what's the first break you had where you actually said to yourself, I don't think I'm going to be doing anything else. This is my career. I was so lucky to have people in my life very young who were supportive, even in punishment. My fifth grade teacher, Mel Tannenbaum. I had to sing the national anthem. And uh, I was, oh, I sang in church choir as the kids, and that was really fun. People were standing around me, though. Okay, Mr. Tanner was just a great guy. He would joke with kids. All right. He said, I got hit in the throat with a hockey puck, but don't, don't pay any attention to it. And he would, you know, in support, like a little during class, we'd get support games and athletic uh, activities and do doing stuff. But uh, he said, and I sang the national anthem, and he, the class was, wow, that was very nice. Yeah, it was very good. And he was supportive. Wow, John, you got a great voice. So he was also part of the, in the school to put on shows with kids. Um, and he and a music teacher started organizing shows. And I think I sang God, no, when I say climb every mountain at a show, those two moments for me as a person. <sighs> See, I have a little mental uh, weirdness, but it, it happens to me now when I'm working with good people and I'm doing things and there's good things happening with other people. So you get emotional when those things happen, like you are now. Are there certain moments where you get done with a scene and you go back to your trailer and you cry because- It comes at strange moments, like right in the middle of you know talking to people. 
Um, I think we, you know, we build our defenses to make things work for ourselves in life. And in ourselves, we don't know. And that's basic to every human being. The power, two most powerful things in the world are truth and beauty. You'd think if somebody said to you, you're a great singer, then your thought is, I guess I'm going to be a singer. Where did the inspiration for the acting come from? I read books very young because I was a sick kid. What books? Tale of Two Cities. Uh, I was, and I loved like the the, uh, the animated world very much. The books about Pinocchio I read first. So there wasn't a movie that you saw that inspired you and said, "God, I'd love to do that." It was just Hunchback in Notre Dame blew my mind. But like the movie, the black and white movies from the '40s and '50s, old movies were really amazing. And also the lack of color was my world of my imagination, where I would go, I could go. Color is too real sometimes. It's a little fake, you know. I, it brings you into a soul at a time by just the story in the black and white. I know you went and did children's theater. Were your parents supportive of it, or were they not gone. supportive? I was already out of the house. They were supportive of me from- You left the house at what time? About 14, maybe. And I got about 15, 16, I was on Broadway. But your parents allowed you to leave the house at 14. Where did you live in New York City? Downtown. You lived alone at 14 in New York no, City. No, no, I was probably a little older than 14. I was staying there frequently, working with a wonderful couple who had been training me, like starting young, 13, 14, and singing opera and vocalizing show tunes and doing things. And they put up an act with the popular tunes of the time. And I sang at Americana Hotel. Uh, and I started working in a bar around 15, 16. What was your name, your stage name then? Youngs. You were singing Broadway tunes. With them. They, they, were, they had the, cl the club. But what was the first transition from singing to acting? We you were, got cast on Broadway as an actor and a singer. What was the show? Well, that, before that, I had a job I took in, in Queens, uh, which was a theater production, original play. And I was uh, in a play at that that where Robert, uh, where uh, Al Pacino did some of his first plays. So I identified with him when he started working there. And the music was involved with kind of everything for many years. Um, and those two men, ben, Benjamin Arrigo and his wife had no kids. They worked with two other young women from my school for a while. They became professional opera singers. Um, I did the work with them in, in the club, in the clubhouses. And then I started to get into auditions off Broadway and get jobs. And I think that happened around 15, 16. I was working and I was coming home late and I was drinking late. So I ran into a conflict with my dad. Um, I didn't want to be I was able to make agreements to work, but it had to go through a process of, for one thing, staying sober, uh, and then agreements for school. Uh, it was interfering with school. Ben, ben Arrigo and his, his wife made it also clear that they had these opportunities. What, how could we, they work it out? Could I do more work 
in the city and maybe stay at a place of their friends uh, or get an apartment. And I told my dad, uh, I'll stay with them for a while, but I want to make money and get an apartment downtown. And by the time I was in high school, I was in like second year of high school, I had an apartment down in Greenwich Village and I was working. I finished high school. So tell our audience how your first big break on the deer hunter happened, knowing that you're not doing really anything in film, anything in well, television. How do you get working, a role like that? And how many auditions did you I've have been to get it? I've years off Broadway and all across the country in theater. I was married young and I uh, continued to work in, in uh, small theater. I got into the actor's equity through Broadway work, like with the, the wonderful musical... Uh, Fiddler on the Roof was zero. And uh, I came into it because somebody had to leave. I went into the chorus. I lied about being in the union. I was lucky. I got in the show. You just told me the two most important things in life mm. are truth and beauty. And one of the things that launched your career was a lie. Well, it's more, sometimes it's more powerful than the truth. It's more beautiful, too. You got to do what you got to do. You know, you, what do you do? You help kids by telling them stories. It's not real life, but it helps. And I, I got a job. I joined the union after they took me out of the show. I didn't think I had to join the union. I was in the show. When I think of the deer hunter, if I'm Michael Chino and I'm the director, I'm casting him. I'm like, bring on the kid who's doing the fiddler on the roof to do this movie. After spending like several years working in theater all over the country I had a couple of the broadway shows ari based on musical version of exodus why did he think that you could be he a guy saw me who in could the do... play on broadway with robert duval and kenny mcmillan called american buffalo no i, I was he, i was a kid that was in and out of drugs on the play that was david mamet he was there almost every day for that every day he was there every day and uh, david mamet was a great guy your first mentor was David Mammoth. Well, I, I, I had done a lot of work with great people. Uh, just my experience with experienced actors, you know, from New York. Their character, their integrity, their discipline, I learned by working with them. How many auditions for Deer Hunter? We had meetings. I don't know if I did an audition. He came to see the play, and he talked to me, and Robert talked to me. Um, I probably read with them. We read all together, but I don't know if I was already in the movie or if that was audition. Or... You know, I was so into doing the theater too. It's like with hair. I did the same. I did movie hair at the same time. Go figure. And two gifts from God. Have you tried to hire somebody lately? It's hard. You post to job boards, you hope you find the right person for your job. But think about it. How often do you check job boards? But there's a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. And I'm sure you've heard of it because they're huge. LinkedIn. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who posted the LinkedIn jobs over the past year. That's right, 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week. Every week. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. 
So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. It never happens. Go to linkedin.com slash Barry. That's linkedin.com slash B-A-R-R-Y and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Terms and conditions apply and I guarantee you, you will never post to another job site again. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name or something and I want you to tell me a short little thing. It could be inspirational, could be anything, could be one word, could be a story, could be one sentence. James Cameron. Yay! Great guy. He uh, was a great director who put me in the, 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 great, the great, I thought it was great, the script, Dark Angel with uh, Jessica Alba, great young actress. What a beautiful girl and woman. And, Michael Weatherly, oh, that kid is sharp. He's not a kid. He's like my kids. He's grown up now. Um, but she was she was able to kind of work. They worked well together, and they were able to kind of bring things together. This this the scripts changed a lot, and hmm, disturbed me because they were so well written. Into kind of they wanted more of a takeoff on the successful show that they had at Fox about the. Uh, the girls who were, uh, some of them, um, deformed. And what was it called? The uh, vampire or something or other. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy the Vampire Girl, which was fun. It wasn't the show we were doing, uh, which was really taking a chance at showing America for the challenges it was going to face in the future and what we'd gone through. We'd been bombed in New York while we were shooting the show and the whole uh, by the Muslim extremism and people were killed on the, 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 the same building they hit again, except on a lower floor. And we had uh, things going on that were, you know, we could see were going to be difficult uh, with pol political uh, stuff in our country and the world. So the issue was put on the table right away. This will mean there will be a great deal of struggle in the lower class. We'll have a great deal of homeless young people. And there will be a, uni a, a universal agreement in our government to bring more of a police state. Nelson Mandela. One of the greatest men I've ever met. And that was an honor. And I uh, worked with the great people who made him great around him and still are there, uh, struggling with a lot of chaos and confusion, but they're doing so much. Meryl Streep. Yeah, what a, you know, she should have become a comic, I think. She's hysterical. To see her watch with her, Tom Hanks and she were on the, uh, on Ellen. Oh, they were hysterical. And uh, their charisma was so powerful in that movie. They, they carried the movie so beautifully as actors, but as people. And the issues in the Ellsberg papers are still unclear. Mel Gibson. Mel. Uh, I just saw him at the Cafe Lux coffee shop, said hello to him there on PCH. He's so powerful, you know, as a, as a person, as a human being. And sometimes you can implode as a human being. Uh, and it usually happens with people you care about, which is unfortunate when you have that much stuff going on. And... Uh, such a great director, 
smart man. Michelle Williams. Well, there you go. Yeah, how many just incredible, incredible, I use the word incredible. They, they talk about all these young women that are actresses getting on TV shows and how excited they want to be, are saying they are. I'm so excited, I'm so excited. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my problems too. Uh, I get a little too excited. This, this power of individuality in young people, men and women, the women who are bringing their work to a higher levels, whether they're an actress, whether they're in uh, the oil industry. The only thing that stops some of these things from going further is old white men. Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing. I was uh, so lucky to be a part of that film. I feel like he was a brother because I was also working close to those communities when I was young and starting to work in theater like in Queens and other places. Um, I met people. He's a genius. I was honored to work with that movie. All right, James Franco. And what do you think that's going on right now? Oh, I'm so sorry that has to happen, but it does. Eh, we learn, we learn the hard way. I think he's a wonderful man. I think he loves people. I don't think he meant, in my opinion, to abuse anybody, but believe me, I've done it. We're men. It's a, it's a stupid position to be in, but we're going to be responsible if we influence somebody to do something they don't want to do. You got to face the music. I've got to do it too. You think I'm perfect? Well, I don't think anybody thinks I'm perfect, but the idea of going through relationships that don't work and you still love each other. You can't do it the right way, but you can still make your amends, see what the problem was, accept it, face it. You know, we I saw him the other day and he was not happy. He didn't look right. He was tense. He was fearful. Maybe he was sad. Maybe he was, he wants to be defensive. He wants to defend himself. Good. Go ahead, defend yourself, but you make amends, and you're the man. You just said something that was so fascinating. And for you, that he hasn't really done. You said, look, I've done it. I'm a man in this business, which is something that so many of these people, if they just said that, I think that's the first step to... Well, there was a couple of writers who happened to be women for the New York Times, and they wrote their articles with months of searching for the true areas of support for the facts. They're not just doing gossip on the news, which is, it really turns me off. There are wonderful shows with great journal, you know, TV journalists sharing their time and being fun and having fun, and the weather is great, and this and that, but boom, this is the news alert. Every five seconds, news alert. Bum, 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 news bulletin, bulletin, bum, 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 news bulletin. No, they're not news bulletins. Excuse me. What is really, what's the point? Kevin Costner. Yeah. Great man. Great businessman for the work he does. I worked with him and I think, you know, he, he gave me direction in one scene. I was doing a character I felt I could bring some personal things into a guy that was kind of a knucklehead even though he didn't want to be and had... He loved his sister and he kind of respected Kevin too, even though, there were, but he didn't know how to, 
you know, he didn't know how to take sides with this family problem going on between people. So he said, John, there was so much internal stuff going on. He said, all right, this is the, this is a really tense scene. Don't talk. Oliver Stone, talk a little bit about the scene you did with James Woods. Jim and I were very good friends, and James Woods, even though we don't see each other hardly at all, we grew up together kind of working in theater, like when I was a kid. Uh, and he uh, and I would share stories in a bar. But just the essence of, again, bringing something to the story from our feelings of this world, of that world from the outside, between the two of us, we had a fight in a scene and before the scene was being shot. Because he's joking, well, I've got to be around taking a picture. And in my mind, this plane's got to come and shoot at us, which is where I got killed. He was, he was my real guy, was a real guy. He actually got shot, and you can see it on a film take. You don't see him, but you see the cameraman or him talking into a camera while he's filming the troops walking to a sugarcane field. I forgot his name, but he was a, he was a journalist down there. He was well-known. My sister had a relationship with him while he was down there from Robin Young. She's a journalist. We talked about her experience there and, his, and also the other guy's love for a woman um, in that community. And war photographers of that kind were more interested in the effect on the people in the area. And... Uh, there was a shot that I, ah, I got up and said, Jimmy's cracking jokes while well, I'm supposed to be getting ready to shoot. I get off the set, get out of here, get, get out of my, and I yelled at him. I hurt his feelings, I, he got upset. He said, well, I'm leaving, I'm going back to New York. And he started walking. And we had to wait for this plane to schedule to come and fly over. It's flying to the set from somewhere far away to shoot or pretend to shoot, and I don't know how they did it, shoot people. and. Uh, my guy got sick, and I'm shooting a picture of, in my mind, a man that I can see holding his daughter up in a doorway to protect her. And there are other people trying to move out of the way that get shot. And we shoot it, and I, I was so upset after the shot. Okay, cut, we're done. Can't get the plane back again. I said, give me a car. Oliver says, could you get your, yeah, don't worry about it. I get me a car. I drive, I fall. He'd walked about five miles. And I see him. I said, Jimmy, hey, what the fuck are you doing? He says, John, I didn't think it'd take you this fucking long to come. <laughs> we, were, we were, we really enjoyed working with Oliver. He's a great man. Al Pacino. Al, he's, he's my padrino. He's my godfather. He's a great dad, too, I'm sure. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. I just seen, saw him the other day. He asked about some of the young men that I worked with on. on he just did this great movie. It's incredible. All the money in the All world. The Christopher the world. Plummer is going to win an Academy Award, I feel. Oh, wow. He, it's, you know, it was a difficult jump for everybody. And Ridley Scott pulled it off. He's that kind of guy. He put, he, when we were doing a... The white squirrel, uh, he'd leave a cigar like on a ship ship rail or something. And I'd, one of his crew, big guy crew, would say, "Take it, go ahead, take it. You know, don't don't let it stay. Don't fall off. Just take it. I take it." And he was he'd light another one. He had these cigars supposedly he got from Guatemala that were made like the Cuban 
leaves in it. No, the Cuban cigars, yeah. But the uh, just a guy working in a condition on a boat all day with a bunch of actors, trying to convince a lot of the actors, don't go below. You know, don't go down below. Don't don't try to take a nap downstairs. You don't have sea legs yet. Keep your you know eye on the horizon as a sailor and work. Stay busy. Keep your eye on the horizon no matter what. Well, guess what happens to the horizon if you're not careful? Ooh, your body goes whoa, and you you can't get out of it once you get, once it hits you, and uh, you have to work through it. <laughs> Excuse me, I'll be right back. Over the edge. He was fantastic. The crew was fantastic. His crew is great. Great, great to work with. Um, he poked me in the chest. He says, how come you're not writing? When I saw him at the, after the screening the other day. you got to write. Uh, and I said something, well, you know, I don't drink anymore. And I, I think uh, I used to think I could write, but I read some of it. You know, it wasn't so... Uh, I actually, as a kid, I wrote a lot. I loved it, and uh, it's it's really it, it's not so difficult to sit down and start writing, but doing it and starting it is the hard part. And I think uh, that film shows he's just he's already on his next film. You know, he's already eighty maybe. He looks like he's forty-five. You know, he acts like it. He's great. David Lynch and Twin Peaks. Oh. I had the honor to have a you know a little part in that and uh, to work with David Lynch. I hope I get to work with him again. It may, may not be uh, possible. And I was going to be a tough detective, right? And you're not supposed to talk about this about this stuff. It was no, it was exciting. I didn't have that much script, but I knew what this kind of the set this thing was. My part was a detective who was involved with corruption in the in the depot there, the house of. Uh, this uh, sheriff's department or whatever. And I'm talking to this other cop who's in on it, who's part of it, but I'm the boss. And I'm blowing smoke in his face, cigarette smoke. We're around the corner outside. I'm telling him about what's, what's going to happen and what he has to do. You understand? And I'm blowing smoke and I'm puffing away in a cigarette. Well. The prop man knew I didn't smoke. And he had given me a pack of these cigarettes that are much lighter. My great respect for this wonderful director, he says, and he, I didn't tell him I couldn't smoke. He says, why don't you smoke real cigarettes? I, I prefer that. He smokes heavily. I said, no problem, no problem. Of course, you know, do whatever you want. I'm fine. So I'm doing the scene, inhaling, blowing smoke into this punk's face. And I'm puffing away and enjoying his stress. And the scene was a little bit longer than, you know, just a regular scene. Cut. Oh, God. I couldn't move. I tried to move off the walls like, oh, shit. Everything's spinning. And they, people, like, could tell. I was bright green. I don't know. But you're going to be all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I still had another two hours to work. <laughs> I got through it. And people said, oh, you were great in the film. Oh, great. But, you know, I haven't even seen it yet. Christopher Walken. Chris is a, such a talented man. And I used to go, I seen him in a couple music musicals when I was working on, walking on Broadway. I don't remember which. Such a great actor. 
we have this you know gift we can go to work as an actor and i'm more i think i'm more honest as an actor than i am in real life i'm kind of bumping my way through every day trying to do the best i can and kind of riding the, this, the grace of confusion with uh, you know a little bit of fear but to be able to open up at a job you're getting paid okay it's a job people say well don't just call it a job it's artwork an artist ain't paying as most artists are not thinking about the, the, the money they're being safe in that one place to, to pretend Robert De Niro he's got a great sense of humor you don't see I you didn't see it a lot you know he was very, very disciplined. He was in character on camera and off camera. Uh, John Cazale was in, he, he looked like he was being himself, but he was also in character all, all the time. Um, and it was in the movie, their, re, their, their sense of their real reality of those people. Um, I played a, a guy who was trying to be liked by those people great people that were in the community and me, I was a schmuck. You know, I wasn't doing too well with the girls. The one girl I got, everybody else had. And she was wonderful in the movie. She's a great actress. So Robert gave the support to everybody in the movie. He supported Mike Cimino, who was a brilliant director. He supported the production. He was extremely mature for such a young man, in my opinion. It wasn't just a wise ass. He thought about things. I was just working with Billy Bob Thornton, and I saw a similarity of working well with other people without trying to. Being a leader of, uh, you're doing well. I don't want to talk about it. We didn't talk to anybody about the work. Maybe, wow, those guys, they're doing dangerous things and that, that river looks really good. Wow, what's in this river? Wow, there's a snake around my leg. All right, they take the snake or do whatever, we eat it later. It was always a very compassionate company and uh, it was a difficult uh, situation sometimes. Sobriety. Sobriety versus alcoholism. Well, the uh, I tell you, I realize it ain't the drinking, it's the thinking. And uh, sometimes, of course, the effect of alcohol on it and behavior that can be, you begin to be build habits uh, with behavior that's completely without respect for the consequences. So now I got to face it when those things are starting to happen and the anxiety that can happen about past or future. So I need to have uh, this outside, not just worry kind of mind, but something bigger than myself that says, stop. And it's the best acting class in the world for me. What's the best acting class? Uh, to let go of what I'm thinking, my, my point of view.
How did you turn it around? Well, I want, I am basically, as an alcoholic, I want more of what I'm going to get. I want more mashed potatoes. I want more of this excitement of my life. I want more to drink. It's a problem with alcoholics, I think. So whatever you're going to do about it is up to you. I've seen brilliant people who are alcoholics. They die drunk, but they've done a great deal of good things in their life. And other people who really destroy other people's lives, including their own. So you make a choice. You know, today, eh, nah, no desire. Sometimes I can think about a nice cold beer. And that's about it. I don't need it. Or even drinks that, you know, well, if I drink enough of them, they're going to damage me. Soda. Diet soda. You know, when you get the truth about certain things you can put in your body, they're not good things for you. So why are we doing it? Well, because somebody else is and they're selling it. And that's what you do. You buy that. Wait a minute. We can change the direction of a lot of things as people. We don't have to have fossil fuel. We, we knew that in the 60s. What did we do about it? We demonstrated then what? Then what? Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, my God. Um, well, you know, you mentioned a couple of great people in films and stuff that work with just incredible directors and actors. So the work in general is what you're most proud about. There's not a specific moment. I would suggest that the work sometimes is an unknown so accepting that un, as an unknown is part of the work. You learn and you, you listen. Many great actors I've seen whose ideas are completely stupid and they change their mind and do something because, oh my, wait, wait a minute, that's wrong, let me do this. So they are willing to, to change. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment? In show business, uh, well, in myself, <laughs> you know, I could be singing more. I could work with great songs. I, I loved operas and the music and show tunes. And my daughter's a singer. I haven't helped her enough, I don't think. She's brilliant, writes songs that are great, but she needed more help from someone. She needs it. I think most artists need, need help. What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in a situation where they're, God knows, they don't know if they're going to live or die. They live in a small town in Long Island, but they have an inspirational dream to be an actor, to be in the entertainment business. What advice do you have for them, all the young people listening and the people in the business, how to get to the next level, how to work in a way that can get them to have the kind of career that you've had working with some of the most extraordinary actors and directors and producers hmm. of our or any generation. Don't accept rejection. Just keep keep dreaming. Rejection is painful. Have faith. You're perfect. You know. So this 
this concept of you know growing and growing up and stuff like that it's it's a process um a lot of times we can really gain more by working with others and a lot of times you got to do it all by yourself and uh you know i've seen people not make a lot of money and are brilliant actors or artists um but to see a goal, go for it in some way, and respect the you know the the steps that you discover have to be taken. Uh, do not subject yourself to an abusive position. Be polite about it. Say thank you, no bye. And even times there's friends that can be very destructive. It's like catching a disease. Whether it's come on, let's have another one, or just try this. Trust yourself. You know, eh, we, you know, if we're still breathing, we're still here. Depression is a major problem for a lot of people, everybody, old and young. Depression is not something to look uh, at, was not a, not a, it's, you know, people get unhappy and then it becomes an obsessive thinking thing. And the obsessiveness is like, whoa, how do you get off of that train? Whoa, drop it. Wow, I have eyes to see and ears to hear. Duh. That's it. Some of the dumbest people can have the most fun in the world. Oh, look at that. Watch a kid. Oh, oh, what's that? You don't have to do anything to respect yourself and love this life. Pain can be a good thing. Oof. Wow. That was a rough one, but I'd do it again. I'd fall in love with that person again. I guess I'd give a little distance, it'd kill me, or whatever. I'd go fishing with that guy again, asshole. You know, why do you say that to me? What a jerk. Look at him, look how he's living his life. But we had fun, we had, that was a moment, we had a good moment here, we had a good moment. All right, all right, all right. You gotta let things go. I have to do that every day. Amazing. Thanks, John. Uh, and as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on DJM1214, December 11th, 2016. The heading reads... Awesome. Five stars. All right. It reads, five-star podcast. I usually wait until Gary Gullman is a guest to give a podcast a chance, but I'm glad I tried this one. Barry has a great interview style and brings a wealth of knowledge to the table. I like how he explains things to the listener that the guests may take for granted. Now that he has included Gary Goldman as a guest, the podcast is perfect. All right. 
Thanks a lot, DJM1214. Congratulations. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code BARRY, and get $100 off and get the best-tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. you love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, ikilledjfk.com. And the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air. And you can save $300 right now. Go to airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry, and start breathing in clean and healthy air today. And lastly, my thanks to Wondery. Check out all the best podcasts in the world there at Wondery.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. I've really enjoyed today. See you next time. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. Till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.